Good day, everyone. My name is Gary Fowler, and I'm the CEO, President, and Founder of GSD Get You Done Venture Studios, a premier AI and quantum venture studio located in the heart of Silicon Valley. I've been involved in numerous startups and several unicorns. I was on the original management team at Click Software, which was sold to Salesforce for $1.35 billion, and also Eva, an AI HR tech company that I co-founded with Dr. David Yang. We believe that intellectual capacity is evenly spread around the world, but opportunities are not. With that, I have an incredible guest today. So Ed Boyle is with the famous, famed Medici Bank. He is a serial entrepreneur, a cloud-native digital international banking guru. He's a problem solver and builder. He's an expert in digital banking systems, and he's with Medici. Many of you may know the Medici family. They were in 1482. They were original bankers in Italy. Um, they were the funders of Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo, as well as a number of popes, an incredible, incredible uh, family, and also an incredible, incredible CEO. With that, I'd like to bring Ed Boyle. Hi, Ed. Hi, Gary. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, you know, you've had a really wide experience base, you know, everything from uh, American Express in the uh, late 90s to uh, e-marketplaces, you know, so you've done a lot. You've seen a lot of growth. In fact, you went you know, you were at American Express to 99, and then you went back in 2003. What made you decide to do that? Well, I left to go into the dot-com bubble. Um, uh, like many people, I was fascinated by it. Uh, I, t I tend to see, you know, a few years forward of where things are going. And at that time, it, I was like, yeah, the Internet makes a ton of sense. Uh, as we all learned, uh, you know, the hard way, it was too early. Uh, you know, the, the, the vast majority of the population was not ready to adopt the Internet in 1999 and it blew up. Right. Uh, and it partially blew up because you had a lot of people that could see around corners that threw too much money at it at too high evaluations and uh, and startups couldn't survive. Um, but I was highly respected at American Express and they were uh, looking to launch a new business within uh, American Express and they wanted someone that was a known quantity and that was a builder and a problem solver and entrepreneurial. And, you know, the, the employees of Ameris Press are fantastic, but many of them are employees and they're not, they're not entrepreneurs, right? If they're entrepreneurs, they wouldn't be there. Uh, so I think their, their, you know, candidate, you know, consideration was quite small. Like people that were known quantities that worked here before, but had gone off to start their own business or work for a small startup. There was very few people. So when they called me, I, I was like, well, I don't think I want to come back. But it was to build the gift card business at American Express, which is an entirely different model. Right? It wasn't a credit card, you know, establish a long term relationship via direct marketing, but instead was we don't know what the distribution model is going to be. <laughs> We're not sure what the business model is going to be. All we know is that the traveler's check group is going out of business as the air deflates from this balloon where people would buy traveler's checks and, you know, in the billions, tens of billions of dollars. I remember those traveler's checks all the time. You know, people, traveler's checks were a big thing. Yeah. Well, you know what they are, Gary? They're stable coins, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they spend enough time in the space, you know, you start to recognize patterns here. And uh, traveler's checks, be they Thomas Cook, American Express, whatever, they're they're basically USDC, USDT in, in paper form. But the, behind the paper form is a, a distributed digital multi-node network. Right, where you would take this token, it happened to be a paper token in today's world, right? It's a it's a QR code, perhaps in your phone, but you know you would take a paper token, which had uh, you know a 
multi-digit, you know, it could almost be 37, sort of like almost like a wallet ID on it. And you would take that into a bank or you'd bring it to a restaurant or a hotel. They would take it to a bank and, and the bank would read that, you know, that public key and recognize that, okay, th we know how to redeem this at American Express through the, this distributed global network. And, uh, and that's how those, what I call stable coins, those paper-based tokenized uh, stable coins were in the tens of billions of dollars without any new regulation around them, right? There wasn't, you know, Congress wasn't freaking out about the 30 or $40 billion that American Express had, was sitting on and managing in treasuries and other, you know, low risk assets. Um, you know, it was, but yeah, so that's, so I went and I'm going back to that, back to that business to see how we could, how we could get into. The, how was it when you left though? It'll come, uh, Ed, to go down through and go back. How was it coming back after you left American Express? Did they open, were they, did they have open arms bringing you in or what was it like? Yeah, one of the one of the great things about American Express is they they're they're very good at managing people. They keep very good records. So um, you know my work history there was of public knowledge to the people that were hiring me. So they, they knew the sort of animal that they were getting, uh, and um, and at least one of the uh, individuals you know the management team had worked with me previously, and so we, we, there was high levels of trust. Um, and you know I, I I believe I established myself well. Uh, you know, took over some positions there where, for example, product development. I, I, I was running. I was a, I was a general manager of that business, and they collapsed under me. Uh, sales, product management, and product development and implementation. And normally, those things uh, from an operator level, where I was at an operator level, those would those would be separate, right? The sales team would sell it and they throw it over the fence, and then the product team has got or the implementation team's got to figure out how to implement it. And of course, we're implementing a product that the product team had built. And um, traditionally, when I come in, th those three areas were separate. And I came into the sales side of it, like, can we devise a distribution strategy and execute against it? And I said, well, the product is not good enough. The implementation's not good enough. You know, you know, I just came out of a startup, and, the, and we have to be the easiest business with which to do business. And we're very difficult to do business with with Ameri Express in the prepaid space, right? And um, so they said, fine, why don't you take all of these three under you? And I collapsed with new product development life cycle from that was, we were doing a 17 month new product cycle time frame, And I got it down to 11 weeks. Wow, right? So we're able to launch a product in 11 weeks yeah, because you, you can't compete. Now, if you're like coming back to my original point, if you're in the relationship business of establishing a credit card with somebody, you can operate in a pretty slow paradigm because Chase and Citibank, they're not they're not launching new credit cards every year. But in the gift card business, you know, be it Amazon or Best Buy or whomever, you know, they are launching, you know, new flavors, you know, every year for Christmas, basically. Right. So we had to, we had to get that cycle time down from a year and a half down to within a quarter, which enabled my sales team to be able to go and make promises that we could keep in the near future. Right. And so wow. even, you know, as salespeople sometimes do is they make promises you know, they sell things that don't yet exist. Um, but I was comfortable with them doing that because if they, if we got a large customer to buy what did not yet exist, we could make that exist in 11 weeks. Well, that's amazing. So how did it, you know, you were at, uh, you were at blade payments. Um, you did this thing with, uh, point payments. And yeah. So that, yeah, we morphed. So I, when I, when I've had enough of American express, um, you know, I decided I, I wanted to leave, 
uh, and I wanted to become an entrepreneur again. And the, um, but of course, I, you know, I see, I tend to see gaps and opportunities. And at Ameri-Express, one of the gaps, you know, sometimes you just come across these things and you, and you shake your head like, is this real? So you might be familiar with pay with points, right? um, you know, pay with miles at the time. Yeah. And, um, and, and then it was, there was an integration to Amazon and an integration to Live Nation. And I was talking to a very large retailer and they said, well, we'd like to have, you know, people to pay with their Amex points at this very large retailer. I was like, well, let me, I'll call the, those people over there and ask them in that department, you know, why don't we do that? And they said, well, that's going to take at least a year and cost at least a half a million dollars for each entity to integrate the systems. Oh, and I was just like, that's not how, that's not how startups operate, right? A startup would be like, oh, we'll just do an API connection, rest JSON. This should take us about three weeks, you know, end to end to get it built and tested. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. And as I understood, I looked at the American Express, you know, uh, these terms, RDC, XML type of structure of their API, it was a sort of thing that was very difficult to work with. And I had proposed, well, why don't I, I want to leave and I'm thinking I'll create a pay with points platform and the industry could use it. And it would be, you know, very modern language. We would connect into these legacy brands and their legacy systems and enable them to connect into a, any retailer, you know, in a couple of days. And uh, so we built that platform and we signed up a, a lot of the major brands, hotels, airlines, credit cards. And uh, the problem was is that everybody wanted to everybody wanted to see it demoed in reality before they would use it in reality. And I couldn't show I couldn't demo the Capital One solution to Citibank. Um, so I was just you know googling for virtual currency, third party virtual currency in 2013, and I came across a Satoshi Nakamoto white paper. And then game over. I was just like, that, this is unbelievable that this is now that they have figured and out how to do who this. Is, who is Satoshi Nakamoto? Do you know? I don't know. It's not Craig White. That's I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, but other than it not being Craig Wright, I don't know who it is or what group of people it is. And I don't frankly care because apparently Satoshi Nakamoto doesn't care for us to know who he, she, they, or them are. It's, it's interesting. It's, you know, it's like a legacy thing. I yeah, know. It's, it is a very interesting, it's also a great marketing sort of thing too, right? It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. You're behind yeah. the creator. You know, right? like, owns more Bitcoin than anybody else. But, uh, but the, um, you know, when you went over to uh, e-marketplaces and you came in a month before the, the uh, market tanked in March, yeah. how did you, how was it? How did you feel that day when the market tanked and dropped, what is it, 700 points or whatever, like crazy, right? How did it feel that day when you did that? Did you say, man, I made a big mistake? Or did you say, listen, this is going to turn around? How was it? How did it feel? Um, it, it was, uh, well, I was on an airplane when it happened. And when I, uh, coming back from Canada, when I landed, I got uh, a voicemail that said, I'm now in charge. Uh, so I was, you know, the number two level. And um, uh, there was a, a competent uh, woman in charge but you know she had not really she'd not run a, a business in distress and i hadn't really run a business in distress either but i was i played uh you know collision sports <laughs> and so uh when people say you know you got there's a wall run through it i'm like okay you know you want me to run through it fast or run through it slow but i'm going to run through that wall so for me it, it wasn't um it was sort of like okay here we go now i'm in charge what do we need to do let's come up with the plans to get through this wall uh and it was you know, I do. I distinctly remember I sat down with the chairman 
uh, of the board. And he said, well, we've got 68 employees. We can afford five, you know, go find, find the five of the 68 that we, that could be the core group. And, um, and it, ironically and coincidentally uh, correlated to people that played collision sports. It's just like the, you know, the sort of people that if you ask them to do the impossible, they wouldn't bring out the regression analysis to tell you that the probability was very low that it would be successful. They just go like, fine, you, you want me to, you know, run into walls. Okay. Uh, where's the wall? So th those would, you know, got the team down to that, uh, went out to meet with the venture capitalists and, you know, how the herd mentality and the pendulum swings. When we went to meet with the venture capitalists, we had a, we had a term sheet, um, you know, before I started, I saw that term sheet. That term sheet was, I believe it was uh, two tranches of $10 million. It was yeah. five foot 15. It was a, it was a, a $20 million commitment with the $5 million down, hit some metrics, come on back and get the other 15. So we had hit the metrics and we got in the car, drove out to uh, Long Island, sat down with the venture capitalist. They'd asked us to bring the term sheet, the original term sheet. We brought it. They said, okay, put the term sheet on the table. We'd like to discuss it. We put the term sheet on the table. They took the term sheet and they ripped it up in front of us. And they, said, they said, you're not getting the $15 million. We know we're contractually obligated to do that, but we're not going to give it to you. And so you have two options. You can sue us and you will never raise money ever again in your entire careers because you'll be known amongst the venture community as having sued the venture capitalists or Go back to your office and figure out how to bootstrap your way through this. So we just we got up and left, went back to the office and got to work. Wow. And how, how did it feel? I mean, because now you're starting right. That, was a, that was a punch in the gut. Right. I, I really had thought, well, I can't man, believe those off. guys didn't do it. That's interesting. You know, after all the time it took to negotiate the deal that they just let uh, you hang in like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure for them, it was like they were looking at their portfolio, like how do they cut losses across the portfolio? Right. It's a, you got to make the decisions. But I remember, too, because in 2000, March of 2000, I remember distinctly the day it happened. We we're planning on doing an IPO on NASDAQ in June. So then yeah. people said to us, well, um, what are you going to do? And we yeah. did an analysis and we looked at it. And we said, what's the probability of success if we do it? What's the probability of failure? What the If people that didn't do it, we looked historically at companies that had not done it in the same kind of situation, like in 1987, right? Remember Black Tuesday? Yep. yep. So we said, we got to do it. So we went out, we did it. We raised, what, about $30 million, I think, at the time, which wasn't a lot, but is enough to keep the lights on. You did and, an IPO in June of 99? In 2000. Remember, it was March 2000. Yeah, okay. Yep. So it was March 2000. We did IPO in June yep. after that, and it was successful. We raised some money. It was enough to keep the company moving forward. Wow. And amazing. then um, the company was sold to Salesforce for $1.35 billion uh, after that. It was bought by a private equity firm and then, and then sold. But the point is, you know, when you have to go through brick walls, I remember because I was a senior executive at the company. I mean, yep. talking about brick walls, it was like, oh, my God. It's like talk about sucker punch. Because we all had shares and we're thinking, man, these shares aren't going to be worth a lot at the time. And we did it. But I remember Webvan and Pets.com and all these other oh, companies yeah. Yeah. that were out there. And yeah, Pets.com went to zero. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that, yeah, there's a lot of employee challenges, right? You, you have a, if you have a staff and their, their cost basis or their you know, notional ideas that they came in with stock options at, at $4, 
you know, that would be in the money at four and, and they're now at 40 cents. You know, they're like, wait a minute, this, it'll be 20 years before I get in the money. So they, so you just, yeah, you know, yeah. what they thought was the reason why they came is yeah. just evaporated and worthless to them. And so now it's just the paycheck and the inspiration of the leader and the purpose of the organization. And oftentimes, right. If it's pets.com, maybe people are like, I'm not, I don't really care about pets. <laughs> I'm here for the stock option plan. Yeah. Right. So yeah, that was interesting, interesting time, and we went down through it. But, you know, you got to keep your head straight. You can't uh, give up, and you got to look and, you know, you got to look ahead and not let the, the noise carry you down. It was interesting. Right, but if you if you look at the capital markets, right, the cap, there's a herd mentality. It's a, There's an institutional herd mentality, right? Individuals, individual retail investors will tend to, to follow what the institutions are doing, right? They look at the big money. They read the tape, and, the, and that big money – uh, when they decide to go to the sideline, they go to the, everybody goes to the sideline. Everybody just sits on the sideline and then and they watch nothing happening. And uh, and I think as we over time move into a distributed blockchain capital market uh, where it becomes more, there's more consumerization. Right. And consumerization is happening in all industries. Right. And as that happens in the capital markets industry, there'll be less. The herd will have fewer elephants in it and more gazelles in it. And those gazelles would be like, well, why are we all going to the sidelines? I don't want to go to the sidelines. I see some early blood on the streets right here. I want to go in and make some investments mm -hmm. because my capital is not working for me. Right. Today, it's more of a, I've placed my capital with some large fund and I've outsourced the decision making to them. Yeah. And they've decided that they're going to sit on the sidelines and they're telling me and everybody else that our money is not working for us because it can't work for us right now. And the incentives for those intermediaries is that, you know, if, if the market goes up, it's because that intermediary is brilliant at managing money. But if yeah. the market, if, if, if the LPs are losing money, it's because of the market, right? So they can just blame the market and say, well, the market sucks and, you know, nothing's happening. So we're on the sideline to protect your downside. But, um, you know, it, it, it's, I, I believe they don't take enough uh, individual ownership. There's an agency discount to how those intermediary institutions manage capital uh, for, you know, for different reasons. And I, I think over time, we'll see more consumer, well, we've already started to see it like a Robin Hood and you know, some of the meme stocks where uh, for better, or for worse, you know, individual retail investors will make up their own decision about what do they do with their capital, regardless of what the smart people on Wall Street tell them they should be doing. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You know, Robin Hood was started in our office the same place where I have my office in State yeah. uh, Willow Road, Menlo Park. So I saw those companies. It's amazing. So when you went down through it, so what was the lesson? So you went, you were there about two years, right? So to yeah. 2002, what lessons did you learn when you're going down through a market like that? So you were saying, you know, you got to stay positive. You got to walk through walls. What other lessons did you learn? I also learned that uh, when the market is really tough, it's, it's tough for everybody. And, um, a lot of the implied rules that apply in a good market don't necessarily apply in a really bad market. And one of the specific lessons I learned is you don't need to pay your payables right now. Right. And because we, we didn't have enough money. So we had, for example, I think we had, let's say a quarter of a million dollars of cash on hand and we had $1.25 million of payables. Like we're insolvent, technically insolvent. What do you do? And option A is you just chapter 11 shut down and nobody gets any money. Right. Option B was, which we did, is we call all the, 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 the vendors and the creditors and ask them, you know, say, hey, I'm sorry, but this is our situation. I've got 20 cents on the dollar, you know, and it's like I can't I could give you 
if I gave you 20 cents, I'd be broke. So I can't even give you 20 cents. Um, and what generally across the board, what we did, we how did you negotiate with them? I, I said to them, I said, look, you know, put, put yourself, and they were all in my position, right? Not all of them. Most of them, they were either in my position or they had, they just received a call, many calls like this previously. So they understood that everybody, you know, the economy to some extent, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's a house of cards, but it's all predicated on, on credit and cash. And when the music stops and the money stops, you know, the money just stops, right? So if you don't pay me, I can't pay the other person. And that right, person right, can't right. pay you, right? So all this money that we thought was moving around the economy just kind of stops moving around the economy. And the phone calls and the emails start happening saying, I got 20 cents on the dollar. I can pay you 10 cents on the dollar, which is one cent on the dollar up per month for the next 10 months. Either that or I just don't pay you. You know, you tell me what you would prefer of those two choices. And everybody, 100% of them said, yeah, we'll take one cent on the dollar for the next 10 months until you've paid me off 10 cents on the dollar. Wow, that's interesting. That's interesting. Which, which we then, which we did. We paid everybody 10 cents on the dollar. We survived. Uh, I turned the company around, made it profitable, and then I left. Once I said, okay, now it's profitable. Uh, I'm going to go now because I, I need I need to rest and, 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 and be in a place that has a has a budget, you know, so we can grow. Well, how was it? What did you do? So once you went through e-marketplaces and you went back to American Express, right? So how was it when you went back over there? How did you how did you feel? So you must have been relieved a little bit because now you got a paycheck. You don't have to worry. It's somebody else's deal. Now you can do what you, you can use your entrepreneurial magic inside American Express. Yeah, no, I felt pretty good. One of the one of the good things about American Express is the scale of it. Right. And, um, you know, sort of when I when I see problems and I see solutions, they tend to operate very well at scale. And in a in a small startup company, you know, scale doesn't really apply. It's really about margin. You, you have to go out and get your 50 percent margin. If you're at a very large scale, you don't need a 50 percent margin. A 10 percent margin would be great because you just ha have just fantastic scale and you're producing tremendous, you know, absolute gross returns. Uh, or profit, right? So uh, to, to go into American Express is like, you know, for example, I I said we should distribute gift cards through Walmart, and I was told that's impossible. It's just impossible. No one can do business with Walmart. You know, they're just too difficult to do business with. I said, well, give me give me a shot at it. And yeah, it took a while, eighteen months perhaps, but we we did a distribution deal. With what was the secret of it, Ed? And what was the secret of doing that deal? Uh, the secret uh, with Walmart and with all retailers was to change the paradigm on how they make their decision, right? Their decision criteria at retail is typically about uh, like um, your margin. It's their margin on the floor, right? That's how merchandisers operate. That's how they're incented in their, in their, their annual bonus. So um, we couldn't win that war. Because the margins on selling a hundred dollar American Express gift card are nowhere near as good as selling a hundred dollar Best Buy card, right? So there's a hundred dollar Best Buy, you know, in the in the gift card space, the stores have operating margins, let's say 35, 40% operating margins. So they'll provide gift cards at a 15% discount to face, right? Wow. And that and that retailer will take the 15% and sell it at face. In the case of an American Express gift card, we're not the merchant, so we don't have that margin. We're just making, you know, the gross is 3%, right? 25 cents plus 2.95 or whatever, right? So that's the gross is 3%. So we could, we've just really had, uh, you know, a 4 or $5 fee. And how do we split that fee? And that 4 or $5 fee is, is lower 
than the when you look at it on a margin basis, right? That's a four percent. Maybe we're giving them four percent versus the Best Buy cards giving them fifteen percent. So I had to convince the uh, the prospects that they were using their entire business was using the wrong metrics to make decisions, and that they ought to be. If they looked at their costs. Their costs are largely driven by square footage, and they should be looking at rent per square foot. And if they give me three inches by four inches of space, how much rent do I pay for that space versus the other guy? Right. And the velocity of sales of Amex gift cards and Visa gift cards is there's a higher velocity of them because they're universally accepted. So you might sell four or five or six universal cards for every one. Um, and they make what, like 3% on each card. Yeah. And so, and so what we were, so we were saying, well, look, I, I've got for this amount of shelf space that we take, we will pay you $3 an hour. The other guys with a bigger margin are paying you $1 an hour. So I'm actually paying you three times more rent for the placement in your, in your retail space. And once I convinced them that categorically they were using the wrong metric and they could use a better metric, then they're like, okay, yeah, you're right. We were using the wrong metric. This, we, yes. The answer is yes, let's do the deal. And that was a you know, multi tens of millions of dollar profit deal for American Express and for Walmart. So you went over to Blade Payments and uh, what was that? So I know Medici, how did you work that deal? You did a crypto uh, debt card, right? Yeah, yeah. So when we're at point payments, once we had figured out, you know, we built the system to enable pay with points. And then I discovered Bitcoin. Um, I'd asked my CTOs, one of the most preeminent uh, financial engineers, software engineers on the planet, sold a business to, to Google for $300 million, which is, uh, became Google Wallet. And I said, let's, um, let's run Bitcoin through the system. And we ran Bitcoin through our system for our demo purposes. And then, I, and then the more time I had a Christmas break and over Christmas break, I thought about it. I was like, we should just go all in on crypto. And my technical partner at the time felt that uh, you know, Bitcoin wasn't ready. You know, it was version you know, 0.2. Or something. It's like it's not it's not production ready, and he basically refused to work with it um, at that time. Right? It was 2013, 2014. Right? It was at let's say like $17 of Bitcoin, and I was like, yeah, but it's just for me as a payments person. I was like, this this is how much was it at the time? It was $17. Wow. Yeah, I, I saw it at 17. I, I we got into it at 17. I was going to the um, the um, BIP protocol improvement meetings, the Socratic meetings in New York with the developers, the Bitcoin developers, and we're talking about, uh, and I was like, this is fantastic stuff. It's, it looks like it's going to be a solution, a long-term solution for non-sovereign um, currency and assets, you know, um, on the internet. And um, and then it went to $62 and I was like, yeah, it's too bad. I missed it. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not in, I'm not in this for the, for the get rich quick anyway. So I, I probably don't need to be buying any of this stuff because it already had its run up. It, oh, you, you know, didn't buy any of it. I, I did, you know, later, you know, when it got to 2000, I was like, okay, I was I'm not making this mistake again. Great deal, right? you, know, what, you know, what I did is I, is I, um, and I did this not just for myself, but for the people on the team, as I said, look, why don't we take one of your paychecks and I'll pay, you know, the company will pay us in Bitcoin. And some of the employees are like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. And and some of the others are like, yeah, OK, I could afford one paycheck. In mm -hmm. Bitcoin. And I think that's worked out well uh, for those people that said yes to that, because that was when Bitcoin, I think, was uh, you know, under it was around eighteen hundred dollars at the time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's uh, Oh, that's great. So you went down through and did it. And then how did you meet uh, 
the Medici Bank. How did that all come about? So one of my co-founders at Blade Payments um, is um, Brock Pierce, who's uh, you know OG in the crypto space. Um, at, at Blade Payments, we, we you know, top coin investors in the world, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, uh, you know, we invented the Bitcoin debit card. Um, I invented the Bitcoin debit card and figured out how to make that happen. Pitched it to a, a bank in Europe called Wavecrest. Uh, they uh, allowed their other customers to break rules and MasterCard Visa shut them down. So ultimately they went out of business and that obviously had an adverse impact on us. Um, and I, I ended up going to work at uh, the other bank that we worked with called Fedor Bank. And Fedor Bank's a German um, challenger digital, you know, challenger bank. And well, so but you did this. So was Blade who bought? So Medici bought Blade, right? No, no, no. Uh, well, uh, the intellectual property migrated over. Uh, so it was sort of an acquire. Me uh, got it hired by uh, Fedor Bank. Uh, did not, I, you know, we nego we talked about whether or not they'd want the intellectual property of the code that we'd built. They decided no. They were just they were a, a, a ruby shop. They, you know, we were Node, and they're like that. They don't know what to do with our, our code. So. Um, just left the code and the intellectual property to the side. It was at Fedor Bank for a couple of years. Hello. Yeah, you froze up for a second. Did I freeze up? Sorry about that. Um, yeah, the, the challenge there was, and the opportunity was bring Fedor Bank to the States. Um, and, and where was Fedor Bank located? Munich. Um, well, so their bank. They were Munich, Germany, and they were banking um, throughout Europe in German and English, yeah. uh, the official language of the company is English, right? Um, and maybe 100 employees from around the world, uh, mostly in Europe, but um, and myself and a couple others we'd hired in the States to bring them to the States. But a feeder got acquired by a French banking conglomerate, which had no ambitions about bringing them to the States. They were more ambitious around the technology of Fedor Bank. So they, how do they bring that technology into France? And maybe how do they commercialize that technology elsewhere? So I had a playbook on how to, to do a digital bank inside the States. Uh, and I stuck around for another probably a, close to a year um, trying to commercialize the tech stack. And the key takeaway from that was how awful is the legacy tech debt of traditional banks and bank because banks banks largely don't feel that they compete you know banking is traditionally a local business yeah. right so you compete locally in your branches it's a real estate play open up a branch you know you get deposits from people that drive by the branch and then you lend to people that you play golf with or go to church with or synagogue with right it's like people you know and trust so therefore you have a reasonable risk so bankers are, are oftentimes willing to share their darkest secret with other bankers because they figure well you're you, you guys are in Munich. We're in Amsterdam. We don't compete at all. So we'll tell you everything. So the secrets that I heard out of Estonia, um, Slovenia, Poland, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, um, Amsterdam, Spain, were just fascinated to me about the problems that traditional banks have in their technology stack and, and how they literally cannot do what a, a startup bank could do by building new modern software. And at the same time, I had had this playbook, which was like bring the modern technology bank to the States. 
where would you do that? How would you do that? Uh, and it was like, yeah, you do it in Puerto Rico and you do it in the cloud. Uh, you, you target businesses and you be crypto friendly. Um, and you want to have a brand like, like Fedor Bank had. Well, how did uh, you, and, you come up with the name Medici Bank? Well, it was it was um, Brock Pierce that introduced me to Prince Lorenzo de Medici. And I met uh, Lorenzo in New York. And of course, he's like, well, I'm Lorenzo de Medici. And since he's a child, people have been poking him and saying, Haha, where's your bank? Where's your bank? And he's always wanted to have a bank. But he's, you know, he's a philanthropist and an, an art collector, an art historian and an artist. And uh, well, I heard he's got a very large collection. Is that true? I, I don't know. I've not seen his collection, but I, I have seen pictures of him in various palazzos throughout Italy. And uh, I've been invited to come and visit uh, at the Vatican and the Uffizi Gallery. So I haven't taken him up on those invitations, but I, I plan to do so. Um, and so when I met Lorenzo, now the, the interesting thing was, is I studied Italian in college and I lived in Florence uh, undergraduate and I lived in Milan during graduate school. And and we take out our phones. I'm like, where did you live? And we're like, wait, over there. I said, wait, what bus did you take? He's like, I took bus 14A. I was like, I took bus 14A. And so we take out our phones and we're looking at the maps. And he, we literally live like four blocks from each other when I was an undergraduate. Oh, my God. That was, now, why did you go to Italy? What made you decide? I mean, Boyle's not an Italian name. Did you just wake up? And well, um, yeah, for a woman, uh, <laughs> I guess is the answer. Uh, I went to Dartmouth College, and Dartmouth requires two things of you in order to graduate. You must learn a foreign language, and you must learn how to swim. Right? Seriously? Yeah, they do not. They have no interest in graduating people that will soon drown. Right? So they're like, no, you're going to learn how to swim. That's one of the first cut. I've never heard of that before. Right. That's yeah. So you're going to learn how to swim so you won't drown. It will not be time and money wasted. And mm -hmm. you'll learn a foreign language. Uh, and I had started with Latin because I'm not gifted at, at, at language. And I thought, well, I'll just do Latin and be done with it. Uh, my girlfriend at the time had, had studied Latin in high school. And I thought she could help me out. And uh, then when she went to college, she decided she was going to study Italian and she was going to go to Florence, you know, sophomore spring or something like that. And I was like, well, let me switch over to Italian and I'll go to Florence sophomore spring. Uh, and so that's why I switched to Italian. And that's why I went to Florence. And spent um, spent the term in Florence. Well, I tell you, that's in, and so you went over there, and then, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, but now, right, and you can't live in Florence and, and not fall in love with Florence and the the, the Medici family history. You just walk around, you know, so much of their properties, and you're like, this is unbelievable. Then you learn the history that they basically invented I'm bank. You haven't gone over there and uh, hung around with Lorenzo, going to Palazzo and all. I know. That. Well, you know, we're we're rarely in the same place at the same time. He's rarely in in Italy for long, right? He he moves around quite a bit, mm -hmm. and the. Um, you know, our orientation historically has been we've banked a lot of crypto companies and they're not based in Italy. Right. They're, they're, they're elsewhere. Um, so the but when I met Lorenzo um, and understanding the history of the de Medici family inventing modern banking, you know, they invented the branch. They invented the check. They invented the letter of credit. Right. They basically didn't I invent. Thought uh, I thought that was a Knights Templar that did the uh, check, actually. Didn't they do that? They no, away. no. The, 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 the Medici Bank was the bank that allowed the, the problem was on the Silk Road. You had traders just getting robbed. Right. Highway robbery. I remember that. And so and they were getting high. There was highway robbery not to steal the goods. The highway robbery was to steal the payment for the goods. 
right? Oh, so right. You'd, you'd bring all your, your rugs or whatever it might be, and then you'd get paid and you go home. And on the way home, you get robbed and they take all the money. So so what the Medici did is they opened up branches. They say, well, if you're bringing, you know, rugs from Turkey, we will just, you know, we will give you basically, again, stable coin, paper-based stable coin. You're, you know, here is a piece of paper that says you bank with the Medici family and your counterparty banks with the Medici family. And so we'll just do a book transfer and you will carry nothing uh, on you. Um, other than it's basically this IOU that says that you have to be this person with this name to present yourself at the bank branch, and that person will get this these funds credited to their account. Right? Um, and and the Domenici family also were the first bank to uh, commercialize or you know use that scale dual entry uh, accounting, and it's a double entry accounting with the offsets that ensure that banks you know, the books reconcile. Wow. So that that allowed and, and, and there hasn't been a lot of innovation since in the last 500 years. Right. That may, you know, the next big innovation was do it on the Internet. Um, and so and there's still a lot of banks, frankly, uh, that, you know, you got to come into the branch. If you want to send a wire, you got to come to the branch to send a wire. And that to me has always seemed somewhat stupid, frankly. Right. It's like, why? Why? Why is me presenting myself physically in the branch? more safe than presenting myself digitally online. Are there not ways? And there are ways online to ensure that you are who you say you are, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Whereas yeah. my brother, my brother who looks somewhat like me and my, I've got a friend who looks somewhat like me could show up with a fake ID and passes me, right? Yeah. You know, perhaps more easily than getting my IP address and knowing the two-factor authentication on a certain app, you know? Yeah. So, um, so be that as it may, we, we you know, I, we saw the opportunity to launch a digital bank inside the United States. And, and Lorenzo said he always wanted to have a bank. And I said, I always want to have a bank that said Medici on it. Uh, we're like, well, let's, you know, now, let's who owned the bank it. before you guys got started with it. Was that Brock or what, was it you or no Brock, Brock's an, uh, a major investor. He's a day one ride or die uh, partner to the bank. Uh, but you know, he's hands off. He's not an operating executive or anything. He's a financial investor and he, and obviously oh, he's I mean, I remember call that he was in the mighty ducks or something. Wasn't he? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Child actor turned um, entrepreneur turned philanthropist. Um, and he's a highly diversified investor now, not just only in crypto. He's been he ran for president of the United States. Uh, so he, yeah, he's very diversified and very active in many different parts of the world. Wow. In many different ways. Right. Uh, and so he, he introduced me to Lorenzo. Um, we decided we should I'll change the name. We'll call it Medici Bank instead of uh, the name I was thinking of at the time. And um, and we acquired a bank that was going into liquidation in Puerto Rico because it was the fastest way to, to, to get a license rather than go de novo and, and wait for a, a maybe or a no or a yes, you know, a year or two forward. Um, we acquired um, basically a, bank, a, a defunct bank, had to sh had to shut it down and then rebuild it and then and open it up again. Uh, and for the most part, because of the legacy uh, tech issues that I had seen at other banks, we decided not to rely on third-party software uh, because you end up with a, like spaghetti solutions that uh, are all over the place in banking. And we decided we would um, we'd have a third-party core 
but every all the you know online applications, the ad, admin system for internal use of reporting, the, the banking portal, all the things that the customer would touch would be proprietary and be beautiful and intuitive to use. And we accomplished that. And then when we had accomplished that, we uh, were opening like in a beta, uh, be a couple of years ago in a beta sort of level. And we determined that the problem though now is kind of like whack-a-mole is, uh, you know, you're only as good as your lowest common denominator. And the lowest common denominator became the core. You know, the system that should have been the most robust and reliable became the system that was the least robust and least reliable uh, amongst the other systems, which we had custom built for our own use. And we ended up basically uh, building our own core system. Uh, well, amazing. So, yeah, so we have a full stack, real time cloud native uh, system uh, and everything, which is nobody has that in banking. I mean, I want to say nobody, but it's less than 1% of banks have a real time tech stack. Everything is we don't necessarily see that as consumers, but for the most part, more than 90% of banks are operating in a, a batch systems and some of these systems i wrote my first job out of college was i was a, a cobol programmer and uh, well, i haven't heard that in a long time that's yeah. been a long long time well i was i was um meeting some folks at bank of america in um, hoboken or jersey city a few years ago and they told me they have a couple of uh, older gentlemen on the payroll um you know guys in their 60s that were cobol programmers back in the early 80s and they keep them on the payroll in case the code breaks because so much of their back end systems are in COBOL and nobody knows COBOL, right? And so they just have these guys are paying an inordinate amount of money to, to keep around to fix things when things break because nobody, you know, no, nobody codes in this stuff anymore. But th this that's the backbone of our financial infrastructure. Mm -hmm. and, and but when you take it into the real world for as a consumer is I send you money and, you know, it appears as if the money's out of my account and it appears to you that the money's in your account. But then sometimes you're like, but I, but you find that they'll say, okay, whatever, $5,000 has been deposited in your account. $1,000 is available now. Yeah. That's a, yeah, it's really interesting. But I thought I had $5,000 deposited in my account and now 1,000 is available now. Now you already have $10,000 in your account. So what's the 1,000 that you're spending? It's actually your own money because the $5,000 is not yet into your account. Now the bank is willing to take a risk on that one. And basically, they're providing you interest-free credit on the one because they're highly confident that five is going to be there tomorrow. But it's not, even though it's an internal transfer from one customer at the bank to another customer at the bank. And if you saw this, like in the, in the crypto-friendly bank space, we had Silvergate and Signature Bank, may they both rest in peace. And they, uh, they invented these uh, blockchain solutions, Signet and uh, SEN. And th they were... Um, overlays, database overlays to make the bank feel extremely confident, 100% confident that you had the money and you had been debited and now I'm getting the money so I can be credited. And th those blockchain solutions, they, they were just a single node, you know, it was basically just a, a SQL, might as well have been a SQL database, but they were an overlay because the core banking systems don't settle until after midnight. Right? Got it. So, so you have an IOU, I'm sending you something. It's like basically you get an IOU real time, but you don't, those don't settle and clear until after midnight end of day processing, which is where the vast, almost hundred percent, 90, mid nineties percent of banks operate today. And so for us, it was like, we, we don't want to, we don't want to build that way. We want to build for the future, be real time 24 seven. 
you know, coming back to my American Express background, I, I really didn't work at a bank until I worked at Fedor Bank. So the idea that the, that the the institution closed, I was just never really dawned on me. I was like, I spent 15 years at a financial institution that did not close. You could swipe your card anywhere on the planet, any time of the day, any day of the week, any day of the year, holidays, Christmas Day, whatever it might be, and the card would authorize, right? Yeah, got and it. Against your money. So I, and so I was just always assumed that that's how things ought to be. And then when I got into banking, I was recognizing, wow, these guys don't, they don't open until nine and they close at five. They're, they take off lunch. Uh, if you actually do the math on the number of hours that are in a week, banks are closed 78% of the time. Yeah, yeah. No, that's amazing. And yeah. this, Ed, we're coming up to the, um, we're a little bit running about 15 minutes uh, behind. Um, closing thoughts and how do people get a hold of you? I know you're looking at raising money. You got a lot of different things you're working on now. Yeah, well, we're getting into we're get, we're going to launch into the crypto back lending space. So it's asset based lending, just like security based yeah. lending. But we're we're going to take Bitcoin and Ethereum as collateral. That space is wide open because the people that were in that market before, which grew that to a multi billion dollar market, they they're in jail or going to jail. They were shut down because they were not regulated banking entities and they were doing regulated banking activities. Uh, so regulators closed them and and they were also pursuing some criminal activity. Anyways, the market's open for us and we're going at that market. The good news uh, is that that market's so open that um, we expect high growth in that when we enter that market. As a regulated entity, we need to offset the risk assets that we will hold in those loans with equity in the bank. So we're raising equity into the bank. And then uh, what's, um, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? My email's uh, eboyle at medici.bank. Uh, that that's a that's a sure way for me to not uh, forget it uh, because I try to get the you know inbox zero and I'll keep things as unread until they're dealt with. Uh, and you can visit the the site of the of the bank at uh, Medici.bank. Well, wow, that's great. Listen, Ed, thanks for taking the time out of your yeah, Gary. Thank you for the time. It's my pleasure Good to see you today. And thanks to all my audience for joining one more time. GSD presents Silicon Valley AI and Tech. My name is Gary Fowler. I'm your host. Stay happy, stay safe, and stay healthy. And I'll be back to you again next Tuesday for another exciting edition. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Appreciate it. Bye-bye.